The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Like all of the Bible, the, the passage that's before us today from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1-4 to comes to us from a good and loving God, and so we should expect it to be loving and for our good. And it is. We need to see that, especially as it exposes problems in us. It is for our good. It is loving and good. All of the Bible does that. Every single passage in the Bible is always exposing issues, exposing problems that are in us from a good and loving God, and then to address them. That's the intention. If you if you go to a doctor, and upon examination, that doctor finds that there's a problem, it is not a good and loving thing for the doctor, knowing that people prefer to be complimented, to say, things look great, keep up the good work. No. If you're on a team and you have a coach... And a coach observes an issue or a problem or a shortcoming and knows that he or she can address it. It is not a good and loving thing for the coach to say, ah, it's going to be a little bit hard to, to confront that, so I won't keep up the good work. God is better than any coach, any doctor. And he puts his finger on problems. And knowing that we fallen people, knowing who we are, there are always problems. And so he always is putting his finger on problems and it's not Look at me, not, do we think that? Not, but putting his hand on us and saying, son, daughter, this is an issue, has to be addressed, and here's how. Always, from a good and loving God, for our good. And all the Bible's like that, every single week is like that, and I mention it especially this morning because this passage is very clearly, very particularly a rebuke. And so it might be a little more uncomfortable for us when we read this. It is a rebuke, clearly so. And it's one that we, that we commonly attribute, point towards other people. Other Christians, inferior ones, not me. But as we look at this and we see, actually this is talking about people a whole lot more like me. That might get uncomfortable, and so I need to remind you here at the beginning, it is going to be a rebuke, and, and it probably will confront something in you. I pray it does, because it's there. Uh, I, I pray it, it, it strikes you. But keep listening, because there is, from a good and loving God, help. He's addressing this so as to bless. Okay? So keep both those things in mind as we're working through this this morning. In the Gospel, God has given us what we need to walk maturely in the Spirit. That's the main thrust of this morning. If I put it in a sentence. In the Gospel, God has given us what we need to walk maturely in the Spirit rather than immaturely in the flesh. To walk maturely in the Spirit rather than immaturely in the flesh. And when I say flesh, it's going to be in the passage today. It's going to be throughout the sermon this morning. Understand, please, that flesh is not talking about skin. The flesh, in, in this context, the flesh is that humanness that is normal for normal human people. Put it differently. It is the perspective, the agenda, the, the goal, the means, the reasons that govern and color how people live naturally, apart from God. The flesh. It's what's common for flesh. Fallen in our sin, this is how we are. And we are not to walk that way, to live that way, but to live differently according to the Spirit. In the Gospel, God's given us all that we need to do that. That's what we're going to look at this morning in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 3. I'm going to begin reading, it, the, reading though, from verse 14 of the previous chapter to kind of give us a little bit of the context. And the context is important. You'll recall from last week that in 6 through 16, God lays out for us two large categories and contrasts them constantly. 
There is God, God's wisdom, God's spirit, God's people. And there is the world, the world's wisdom, the world's spirit, and the world's people. Two categories. And in 14 to 16, he's addressing the people. There's the person who is the natural person who only knows this world and must necessarily then walk according to the flesh. Cannot understand the things that come from God. Cannot, it says. But then on the other half, there is the person given the Spirit by God, given the Spirit, and therefore able to make judgments about both worlds because she now is in this world, the spiritual world, but used to live over here and understands that one perfectly fine too. Having the mind of Christ, though, is able to make judgments about and to understand the things of God. Perfectly? Omnisciently? Sinlessly? No. Which is what brings us to our passage. Verses 1 to 4 of the next chapter. We don't live perfectly. Always walking in the Spirit. Always walking after God. And so Paul confronts that in, in issues of rebuke. So that's, that's where we're going this morning. And I'm going to begin reading, as I said, in chapter 2, verse 14. And I'm going to read down through chapter 3, verse 4. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? The word of the Lord. That's our passage this morning. I'm going to make a couple of observations about what it says and how that applies to us in just a moment. But before I go there, I first need to look at what it doesn't say, what isn't here. And the reason to do this, the reason this is necessary is, found in the way that this passage is interpreted in a number of Christian circles these days and the harm that that interpretation causes to both Christians and those who are not Christians. Faced with the reality of perhaps hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people today who claim to have become Christians at some point in the past, but whose lives over time show almost or perhaps absolutely little evidence of that conversion. And so the word conversion means change, turn. Somebody professes to have been converted, but over time, as time goes on, shows little evidence of actually having been changed or turned. Faced with that reality of hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people, Some Christian circles have tried to explain that problem by citing this very passage and claiming that these verses describe those folks. They are, it is claimed, these brothers, infants in Christ from verse 1. Christians, for sure. Those are terms that make clear they're Christians, but not spiritual Christians, fleshly Christians. People of the flesh, verse 3. Christians who are still of the flesh behaving or Another translation might be living or walking in a manner that is still after the flesh, a human way. End of verse 4, being merely human. So they're Christians, but they're behaving in a merely human, fleshly way. Which obviously comes right out of the passage. I mean, those words are all right there. And it's taken and applied to these folks. And a word often used, if taking an older word for the word flesh, carne, These folks are then given a name, carnal Christians. Capital C, capital C. It's a a category created. Carnal Christians. Christians, but Christians who walk and live after the carne, the flesh. 
Now, their lives aren't what they should be, but they are, in fact, Christians, it goes. And when you get onto the lives aren't what they should be, very often, verses 12 to 15, later in the passage, we'll see this next week, those verses are drawn in, and, and the analogy, we'll unpack this more next week, about a life built with either precious stones or with worthless stuff, wood, hay, and straw, wood, hay, and stubble. So these carnal Christians, it is said, they're Christians, but they have built lives with worthless things that all burn up at the judgment. They pass into heaven, but through a fire, and realize what a waste of a life I made. And saved, but what a waste of a life. Everything vanished in smoke. Oh, sorrow, but saved. You're a Christian. You're saved. And therein lies the danger. Affirming the salvation of someone using this passage that's not talking about that situation. First, verses 12 to 15 are not talking about us living lives in ways that are not profitable. Read in context, that passage is very clearly talking about ministers building the church. Very clearly pointing out that ministers will be judged by God for how they build God's church. Some who build it well with profitable materials and some who build it very poorly and casually and carelessly with worthless materials. Clearly is talking about that situation. Not talking about my personal life. Then come back to our passage this morning. Clearly... There are Christians here in verses 1 to 4 who are living after the flesh. So there is, if you will, carnal Christians. There are carnal Christians. But how does Paul describe them? How does Paul describe them? Who is Paul talking about when he uses this terminology? What does he mean? Well, in Paul's eyes, carnality is shown, verse 3, by jealousy and strife. Verse 4, factions within the church. He has no mind, he has no picture of someone who years ago claimed to be a Christian and has no contact with the church anymore. Who is walking in all kinds of worldly behaviors. He's putting his finger on jealousy and strife. That's the problem that he notices that tips him off. And what else do we know about the Corinthians? What else does Paul have in his mind? Well, what does the whole letter tell us about the people who Paul calls carnal Christians? Track this. Think about the whole letter. These folks are people who are still regularly assembling together as a church to worship God in the midst of a culture that strongly disagrees with them, persecutes them, and calls them fools. And they meet in worship anyway. Verse 2 of chapter 1, calling upon the name of the Lord. That is, trusting Him. Not just praying, but trusting Him. Leaning on Him in their lives. Verse 4, displaying abundant evidence of the, the grace of God poured out on them as evidenced in spiritual gifts, all wisdom and all knowledge that they very freely display in their worship services. Now, sometimes not well, which causes the strife. But they meet together and grace and the Spirit of God is clearly on them. The middle part of this letter reveals that they are also extremely interested in knowing accurate theology. They ask theological and ethical questions because they want to know what God says and they want to do the right thing. And they write to the Apostle Paul to ask him. They are still in contact with the Apostle. Now, some aren't, which causes strife and division. In fact, some would prefer to take their authority from the Apostle Peter. From the Apostle, get that? Or maybe from the, the wise and gifted Bible teacher who's passing on the Word of God to them, Apollos. What's the point of all this? Don't miss it. Paul has a category, carnal Christian. And in that category, what he has in mind there are people who regularly assemble together, clearly display the grace and the gifts of God, are interested very keenly in knowing theology, doctrine, and ethics, and what God has to say about it. They give allegiance to the apostles themselves. 
We, today, have a category carnal Christian, and what we have in that category is somebody who 20 years ago prayed a prayer and since then hasn't looked at all like a Christian. We would do very well to refrain from assuring him or her that she's going to heaven. Now that's an extreme case. Sometimes it was only 10 years ago, or 5 years ago, or 3 years ago. My point is, and carefully, my point is not that we should tell them that they're not Christians, because sometimes five becomes three, becomes two, becomes one. I don't know. But we must refrain from assuring them, despite all the evidence, you're in this passage. Despite the fact that you don't do what all these Corinthians are, we cause great harm to people when we give them that assurance. We cause great harm to the world out there that's watching by telling them this is acceptable Christianity. Just say it with your mouth and come sit in a pew. Your life need not change at all. And that's fine. Can't do that. For their sake. For their sake we can't do that. And lastly, we mislead not just the folks themselves or those who watch them, but we mislead ourselves when we assign them to this category and fail to realize, actually, that category is for us. Because if you walk through this list, this sounds a whole lot more like us. Meeting together regularly, giving clear evidence of the presence and the blessing and the grace of God, spiritual gifts present among us, eager to know what God says, asking the Apostle Paul every week, what do you say? What does God say? Tell me, I want to do it. Yet colored by strife and discord and factions. In the church sometimes, in your family sometimes, in your marriage sometimes. That's what Paul says, ah, there's the proof of the carnality. Not that you don't know anything, not that you don't come to church, not that you don't worship, but that you fight. This passage is speaking a whole lot more to us than it is to somebody else. And so with that, I come around to say not just what it doesn't say, but what it does say. I'm going to make two observations. Remember, the main point I'm working on is, in the Gospel, God has given us what we need to walk maturely in the Spirit. That's what I'm working towards. Two two observations about that. First, we people of the Spirit must not walk according to the flesh. We people of the Spirit must not walk according to the flesh. Obviously, He is speaking to Christians brothers or sisters, speaking to people who are believers. The preceding context sets up in in 6 and following that if you're a believer, you are the mature. He's setting that up as this is the whole category of Christian, the mature. You have the Spirit. You're able to discern and make judgment about all spiritual realities. That's the Corinthian Christians. They are spiritual people. However, there's a problem. But it's a problem of degree, not category. You are these mature people. You do have the Spirit. But I can't talk to you like that. Because you're not acting your age. You you are this chronological age. You should be living this way, but you're not. You're living as infants still. Reinforced by by the analogy. Verse 2, what do you feed infants? Milk, not solid food. Which is entirely appropriate. There is no problem for a five-month-old to feed only on milk. The problem is if a five-year-old feeds only on milk, right? That's where the problem shows up. And what he's saying is, you're not acting your age. or Leaving behind the analogy, because it's not really about just chronological years. What he's saying is, you're not living lives informed by shaped by the mind of Christ, but rather are living according to the world's values and the world's perspectives. Which would be totally fine if you were just barely born again. 
Here's the, the world's perspective and, and Christ's perspective. And if you were just barely born again, I could, I could completely understand that because it would be difficult to sort out what is of this new mind and what is of this old mind. What, what am I supposed to actually do and be and think? I could understand that if you were just a brand new infant, but you should have moved on from here. You haven't. That's the problem. You're still of, in your minds, of the thinking of this world. How do I know that? Strife and quarreling and discord and factions. Verses 3 and 4, the evidence. Jealousy and strife and quarreling are the evidence of the carnality. Not something extravagant. He doesn't say, because I've heard the report of all of the rampant sexual immorality. Because I've heard the report of the, of the tremendous amount of, of financial embezzlement and all the murders. No. Because I hear you argue with each other. Because I hear you don't get along but are in conflict. Maybe openly. Maybe sometimes just politely nodding in the hallway. And in your heart thinking, I don't want to talk to this person. They don't, they don't get, I don't get along with them. Moving on. That's what Paul puts his finger on and says, that's the carnality. That is what living according to the flesh looks like. And you must not walk like that. We must not walk like that. It's an entirely inappropriate lifestyle. Now, there are two things I hope to press upon us this morning from this point. And get this, it it may be a surprise to some of us. It may be unexpected, but interpersonal conflict is the sign of spiritual immaturity that he puts his finger on. Which means it is possible for a Christian to have tremendous spiritual gifts, to speak in the tongues of men and angels even. To be given from God the ability to prophesy and to know and reveal hidden truths and understand all kinds of theological in and outs. To have tremendous faith in God, to move even mountains, to give sacrificially everything that you have, even your body to the flames to be burned. It is possible for a Christian to have all of that and be all of that in spades. But if you are not patient and kind, if you envy and boast, if you walk in arrogance and rudeness, insisting on your own way, irritable, resentful, Just to be clear, I'm reading all of that out of chapter 13. In case you haven't picked up on that, that's right out of chapter 13 from this book. I wonder why that's in this book. You can have all kinds of gifts, all kinds of knowledge, all kinds of sacrificial giving, all kinds of faith. You can share your faith with tons of people and lead them all to believe in Christ. But if you have not love, bong, a resounding, annoying, clanging, ringing nothingness. Look at all the gifts. Look at all the knowledge. Look at all the faith. Look at all the people He's won to, won to Christ. Wow! Carnality goes with all of that. And carnality must not be accepted among us. If you have not a sincere, earnest love for the people of God that is shown to be real by the loving, peaceful, humble, grace-filled relationships that you breed... It's all meaningless. So the first thing I need to press home here about this passage, it's confronting self-focused lovelessness in the church. Now how did I get to self-focused lovelessness from walking according to the flesh, 
strife and quarreling. Connect the dots. What does James say? What causes quarreling and strife among you, brothers, sisters? Quarreling. So there, he's got he's got these words right there. What causes this? And James answers, you want something, but you can't get it, and so you go to war over it. You want something, and you can't get it. Or you want it for your own purposes. You want the right thing for the wrong reasons, according to serve yourself. He ties it back to what causes quarreling and strife, love of me, meanness. That is me-ness. Self-focus. That is just the way of the flesh. If it's meant to be, it's up to me. The way of the flesh. I see something that will feed me, that will satisfy me, and I will go get it for my purposes, in my timing, by my methods. That is the flesh. So often we ourselves are the Christians walking according to the flesh. And we don't realize that we are that immature, carnal Christian because we get deluded by all the stuff we know and all the stuff that we do well. Is this you? Have you been a Christian for 30 years and carnal for 29 of them? I'm not trying to put an actual time frame on because who knows? How, how do you calculate all that chronologically? Do you understand what I'm getting at? Do not deceive yourself into thinking length of time in the faith and display of gifts and acquisition of theological knowledge equals maturity. It doesn't. It does not. All of that can come with walking in the flesh. And often it does. Is that you? You can ask by saying, when I look around, when I come into actual contact with people, does conflict arise? I'm not talking about conversation in the hallway. I'm saying when you actually connect to someone, does conflict arise? Maybe in the church. Maybe in your home or your marriage. Maybe with your kids. Or do you breed? Does it seem that the people you touch breed relationships that are at peace, colored by grace and love? Which is it? Ask yourself. Is that you? And if it's not, the second thing I need to press home is a plea that you're not just mentally skip this because you've discovered that it's not you. It, it might be you, you just don't realize it, but it might be that strife and quarreling doesn't color your life. Amen, if it doesn't. Amen. But realize this. Here's the second thing I need to kind of press on by way of application. Notice the problem is not, per se, the infighting. That's... An example, that's evidence of the problem. The problem is walking according to the flesh, which plays itself out in strife and discord. The problem is walking according to the flesh. So ask yourself, maybe I'm not prone to strife and discord, but where do I walk according to the flesh? It may be that you don't have any contact with people, so you don't see strife in your life. But what you live for day in and day out is just the same values of the world as every other person on the planet lives for. Satisfy yourself. Love of self rather than love of God and love of others. Is that you? Ask Him, Lord, how and in what way do I live with myself at the center of my thinking and living? with myself as my goal, with myself as my authority. Just ask Him. Maybe He'll speak to you and just put His finger on something lovingly and graciously and kindly. Put His finger on something and point it out to you. Give some attention to that. I plead with you because historically, this has been a weak point of our church. 
Now, historically, I've only been here for five and a half years, so I, I wasn't here 10 years ago, 15 years. I, I can't speak with personal authority about past years. But I think the evidence would bear out that if you were to ask people, what do you think about this church? The first thing to come to mind would be something about theology or biblical knowledge. It wouldn't be love. I think. I haven't talked to everybody, but I think. And I I do know from time to time, I talk with people who are here right now, and that's the buzz that I get. So give some attention to this. You know, we are us. We, we can't talk about what the church is. That, that's us. And so I've given some time to this over this last week to ask myself this question. It has been very profitable. It has been very profitable this last week to think about love of self versus love of God and love of others. And to think about God Where do I not love you and love others but love me? What does it look like in my life? Lovingly, graciously convict me of it. It has been very profitable. So I ask you, ask Him. We must not walk according to the flesh. Not in discord and strife or in any other way that that shows itself. We mustn't. And thankfully, God gives us help to correct it, which leads to the second point. The second point is not drawn explicitly from this passage because all that's here, strictly speaking, is rebuke. Confronting the problem and saying, this is a problem. So the solution is not explicit here in this passage, but it is strongly implied. So... Here's the second point. God, by His Spirit, feeds us with the Gospel so that we'll grow to love Him, trust Him, and so walk with Him. God, by His Spirit, feeds us with the Gospel so that... So this feeding by the Spirit of the Gospel produces something so that we'll grow to love Him and trust Him and walk with Him. If the rebuke is that we are not to live according to the flesh, then the opposite of it would be implied according to the Spirit. It's about the Spirit. Walk according to the Spirit. God wants to do something with His Spirit in us to influence our minds, our hearts, to teach us, to impart to us words not taught with human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. In verse 13. And what are the spiritual words? Take a look at verse 13. We impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. What does God by His Spirit spiritually want to teach spiritual people? What does He want to teach us? Huge clue. Huge clue. Between the two times that He has expressly mentioned, this factionalism, the division, between the two times, What is he imparting? Between now and working back to chapter 1, verse 10, what does he impart? The gospel. Over and over and over again. Front and back, in and out, up and down, he's speaking repeatedly of Christ crucified, the wisdom of God. Doesn't want to cloud it with human wisdom, so he just says, I want to speak this plainly, relying on a display of the Spirit's power to make it shine. Spiritual truth by the Spirit before us. God's saying, you're stuck, you Corinthians. He's saying this through Paul. You Corinthians are stuck in worldly, fleshly living, and I need to pull you back to me. I want to pull you out of that. What do I do? I'm going to speak by the Spirit the gospel to it again and again and again and again and again. That's what is plain in these couple of chapters. And that gospel presented to you again and again and again and again and again will do something in you. It will grow in you love for me, trust of me, and then a walking after me, seeing how good and trustworthy and loving that I am. That's what the gospel aims to do. Realize this, brothers and sisters, the gospel is not just 
information about the theological mechanics about how God dealt with the sin problem. It is that. It is an informing message about how God has dealt with the problem of sin. We face a problem with sin that we could not solve ourselves. Before a holy God, we were guilty. Objects of His eternal wrath. And God sent His Son to earth, become a man, to obey the law, and die in our place. It is about that. It explains all of those details. That's the message. But the message within the message, or perhaps I could say, the heart of the message of the gospel is a message about the heart of God. So think. It's a message about the heart of God. The cross, the cross sounds out to you a message from God. And He says to you, what do you know? What is it? Think. I know you're guessing what I'm saying. It sounds out to you a message from God and it says, I love you. Is that what you thought? I hope. I love you. With a wide, long, high, deep, steadfast, everlasting love. Just look at what I have done for your glory. Ooh, can you say that? Absolutely, verse 7 does. Remember this from last week? Obviously it is for the glory of God. Fully it is for the glory of God. Awesomely it is for the glory of God. But verse 7 he says, for your glory. So think about this Christian. And if you're not a Christian this morning, to a great degree this is about what could be true of you. If you would come to Him, this Christ crucified to pay for sin, if you would come to Him, humbly trusting Him, He would forgive you. So there is a message here about a potential, but there is also very clearly, you must hear this, there is a message of the love of God for you too, right now, you who are not yet a Christian. In love, He says to you, you're not yet a Christian, but He says to you, I hold out my hands and I say to you, if you will come to me, I will write your name on my cross and forgive you and place you smack dab in the middle of all that I'm about to talk about. It's true of the Christian right now today. So come. He says to you, if you're not a Christian right now, He says to you, I take zero pleasure in the death of the wicked. He calls you wicked. From a loving good God, a rebuke is always a good thing. He calls you wicked because that is your stand before Him. A holy God. But I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And I hold out my hands to you. Come. Please. Come. It is an offer. It is a command also. He is God. But it is an offer. Come. All you who are weary and heavy laden, come. I will forgive you and lift up your burden and write you right into the middle of all of this. Christian, this is true of you right now. Think about this. Think about this. Something happened at the cross. Look back at verse 30 of chapter 1. We've talked about this repeatedly, but so does Paul, so that's okay. Something happened to you at the cross. God acted. He sent His own Son, crushed Him, says Isaiah, to give you life. To give you life, He says. He made this Christ your wisdom, that is, your righteousness, your sanctification, your redemption. We've talked about this every week, so I hope it is familiar and being pressed into you. He has made Christ your righteousness. You stand right before Him, clean. In a stroke, He removed all sin and all guilt off of you, though you are highly guilty. But it's gone. Gone. Removed. You were righteous in His eyes. And He's sanctifying you, working every moment of every day to 
to make you like Him, to change you, to free you from the sin that grabs you and is hard to fight. He's at work to do that, redeeming you, making you an heir of a remarkable inheritance. We've talked about this repeatedly. It must be large in your eyes, Christian. The thing that you most long for, the thing that you're living for, and when you're walking in the flesh, attempting desperately to find in fullness rightly is found over here. He has already given it to you in the inheritance that is yours. Your wisdom, your righteousness, your sanctification, your redemption, all for your glory, as 2.7 says. For His glory, absolutely yes. But what is it that's glorious about Him? That He would be this for you. That He would do this for you. That He would bring you through this life with this kind of blessing and then to the next life where you will dwell with Him face to face forever in a realm that is clean and pure and right. It is amazing grace. It is astounding love. Christian, oh, how He loves you. Dare to believe it. That's the problem, you know. We don't really believe it. Oh, I'm going on about it, and everybody here is saying, yeah, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Jesus loves me, this I know. Yeah, I got that. You don't. You don't. In our fallenness, ever since Genesis chapter 3, we have been fallen. And there remains in us something that still strongly resonates with the original and frankly the only lie that Satan offers. Is God really good? Really? Oh, come on. Really? And something remains in us that says, oh, I don't think so. I mean, it all it says he is. But look, there's a hundred dollars on the table right there. and I could have it. Oh, and he says, I can't. If he was good. And it whispers again, he's not, is he? Because if he was you're right, you're thinking right. If he was really good, he'd let you have that. He'd give it to you. But he says, no, he's a limiting, mean-spirited God. And part of us thinks that's true. Why else do we sin? Why else do you sin? Nobody sins out of duty. What I said is duty. Nobody sins out of obligation. You're never sitting there saying, I would love to follow God, but you know, what I have to do is sin. You're never there. You're always weighing options and saying, this seems best, and I go for it. And I reach out my hand to grab the hundred. And yes, God says, can't have that, but not in a huh, way. What he says, to continue the analogy, <laughs> maybe this will stick with you. What he says is, okay, I see that hundred, and I raise it this. And he raises it with an infinite inheritance. And the problem is, we don't look at all of that. We just look at the original hundred and say, man, may God the Holy Spirit, we need God the Holy Spirit, like a floodlight, remember last week, to come on and shine on this inheritance so that it is blaring and bright and it, it illumines everything on the table and we can't help but look at it and say, oh, look at that. What a piddly offer. Look at that. That's the Spirit's job and we must have Him do that in us. By the Spirit, He preaches the Gospel to us and that is what wins us to Him. And shows us, oh, look at the love. Oh, look at the grace. Oh, look at the goodness. And we love because He first loved us. 
And we trust Him. Who wouldn't? That kind of a God. And we follow Him because we believe His path bears awesome blessings. So I ask you, I plead with you, dare to believe that He actually loves you. Move it past your official theology and down into the actual decision by decision by decision that you face every day. In every single moment, Every single thing you walk into is under the hand of a God who has already fully and freely forgiven you. Who deeply loves you, has omnipotently secured you, and vastly, eternally blessed you. May the Spirit of God illumine that spiritual truth to your spiritual mind and call you to it and give you grace to believe it. So let me try to pull this together here in this example. So you find yourself, to use the, the illustration here, or the example here from verse 3, you find yourself ab- about to get into a quarrel or getting angry with some other person. It's going to happen. You, you find yourself in that spot. What do you do? Maybe you find yourself uh, about to, or at the moment, judgmentally viewing someone else as inferior and yourself as superior. What do you do? Well, first, see right there, that is carnality. That is spiritual immaturity. That is a heart that's bent towards the flesh. So may, may, may that alert you. Oh, This is not just, I'm getting my feathers ruffled. Oh, this is sin. Ah. This is coming from thinking about me and loving me and you're not doing it for me. Think about that. And then immediately, Spirit of God, I mean, say these words, Spirit of God, help me to see the love of God for me at the cross. Help me to see it. I know it's there intellectually. I know it's there. But help me to see it and to realize that nothing in this situation can separate me from that love. Nothing at all here threatens that. Nothing. Help me to see it. Help me to trust you to secure me and bless me and help me to love this person like you do. So that's, that's a prayer. Now, that has to become kind of instinctual because you probably don't have time to call time out in the middle of the conflict and then kind of go over and get yourself right and then come back. It's got to be right on the tip of your tongue, how you're living every moment. All of that. God, Spirit, help me to see the cross, to see your love for me, to see my security in you. And to love this person rather than love me, which is what's making me angry right now. Spirit dependence. Active spirit dependence. So then speak and act, respond in patience and kindness and grace. Maybe you still need to disagree, but you do not need to be disagreeable. There's a difference. Maybe you still need to disagree. But if you're disagreeable, it should run up again. Ah, there's my sin. We need to be spirit-dependent and active in that spirit-dependence. So responding appropriately. Because you must speak. You must make decisions to give and to sacrifice. But dependent on the Spirit of God to show you the love of God for you in the cross. So it draws you to Him. I have this, this kind of idea about what a church would be like that I want to be a part of, of which I want to be a part. And I was thinking about the Lord's Prayer 
in this regard. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Let's think about that piece right there. Your kingdom come. So there clearly is a future aspect. Bring your kingdom to this earth. But I was thinking about, you know, the kingdom actually has broken in and the kingdom, Jesus said, is within. So if your kingdom were to come to me, and this one and this one and this one and this one and this one, then your kingdom would be displayed a little bit here right now. What is your kingdom like? So here, this is my thinking, how it's going. Your kingdom come here would look like a people who walk according to the Spirit and love one another. That would be sweet. I want to be a part of a church like that. I really do. Do you? And that is us. We are us. That kind of church is not going to come if it doesn't come first to It has, it has to come first to me and to you and to you and to you. So when I'm talking about, I, I give this example here of you're about to get angry. What do you do? That's actually real. You know, I'm not just using that to sort of illustrate the point and tie it all together at the end here. That's actually real. That is going to happen to you, right? Sometime before you leave the building, it's going to happen to you. And at that moment, you're, you're faced with something. You're challenged by something. Am I going to respond by running to the Spirit and saying, Spirit of God, preach the gospel to me. You have given me what I need there. You have given me a display of the love of God for me from which I cannot be separated and which secures for me everything I need. Preach that to me, please, right now. And then I will respond with that in the forefront of my mind. Are you going to respond like that or not? That involves a fight in your mind and heart that you wage every moment before you leave here in half an hour. I plead with you. I want to be a part of a church like that. I am extremely confident that God wants to build a church like that. And so I plead with you, join in. Humbly depend on the Spirit. Keep the gospel at the center of your mind, the center of your conversations. God, in the gospel, has given us all that we need to walk maturely according to the Spirit. Take Him up on it. Seize that. The Spirit preaching of the gospel to yourself. Seize it. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.